I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. For those of you who are visiting with us, we are going through the book of 1 Peter, and we have made it to the latter part of chapter 2. So while you're turning there, I'll give a bit of an introduction before we read the text. So many years ago now, I sat through the most boring class I've ever taken in my life. I learned less in that class than any other class I ever took in my life. We watched videos, we listened to the teacher for what felt like an eternity, and we colored lots of pictures. And before you ask, this was not a kindergarten class. I was 17, and it was a driver's ed class. (laughs) There was one thing, though, that the teacher of that class did say that stuck with me through the years, and he said it repeatedly. It's something I remember very well. In his very distinct teaching voice, he would say, there are actions and there are consequences. Now, this man was also a science instructor at this school, and he paraphrased Newton's third law to try to teach the kids in the class that their choices in life had consequences. So how many of them heeded his advice? I'm not really sure, but there is a lot of truth to that proverb. Certain events have dramatic consequences. So as Christians, the most critical event in the history of the world is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession describes the various elements of Christ condescending to earth, Christ coming to earth as his humiliation. That's the word that's often used. So in this section that we're going to look at today, Peter is going to be talking about the same topic, the humiliation of Christ. And he'll be focusing on the suffering of Christ during his earthly ministry. So here's really the rub. If Jesus is your Lord, then his suffering in some way affects how you must live now. So what we will see in the text is that because Christ suffered, we are called to suffer too. So with that introduction, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll read verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like strange sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So last week we looked at the first of the three occurrences of this command in 1 Peter to be subject. And the command there in verse 13 was to be subject to every human institution. So today we're looking at the second command to be subject. 
The command is now for slaves to be subject to their masters. And the primary reason for this command, much like the last one, is for the purpose of evangelism. Christians, they were living in dangerous times when Peter wrote this. He knew that the persecution against Christians was only going to get worse over time. Believers needed to give no legitimate grounds for complaint or for punishment from their governing leaders. The believer needed to stand out from the culture in good ways. This would legitimize the faith in the eyes of the world and reduce the likelihood of persecution. But most importantly, Peter gives the command in verse 18, because God is holy and therefore his people, his special people, must also live holy lives. And for that reason, if we are persecuted, it better be for doing good. And that's the first point of two that we're going to look at this morning. Because Christ suffered, you must suffer only for good. So in verse 18, Peter addresses this command to servants. The word for servant can also be translated as slave, as the NIV does. Peter is addressing people who were legal property of others. And that is a difficult group to talk about in modern culture. We live in a nation where slavery has been abolished for a long time now. Not only that, but the focus on American slavery in the pre-Civil War South has left a profound impact on our view of slavery. I don't want to get into all the details of slavery, but we do need to note a few things before we continue on in this text. First, slavery in the ancient world was not all that different from modern slavery. American slavery was mostly along ethnic lines, but that actually was not that uncommon in the ancient world either. But there was a large percentage of the slave population that would have been of the same nationality as their masters. Second, unlike modern slavery... In the ancient world, slaves could be paid, they could gain their freedom, and some were even very skilled. Some slaves could hold powerful positions, and they could be in charge of entire estates and even businesses for their masters. If you remember back to the book of Genesis, Joseph, second in command over all of Egypt, was a slave, even as the leader. So while most were poor, unskilled, and uneducated, some could be very skilled. But unfortunately, both modern and ancient slavery are open to the same evils of abuse, which we will see in this text. The third thing we need to note is that slavery was not a creation ordinance or something designed by God. Scripture neither affirms nor forbids slavery. Slavery is a human institution that was developed after the fall in a sinful world. So while Scripture neither encourages nor bans slavery, it does give commands to protect the slaves And the masters. So that's enough about slavery itself as an institution for what we need for this sermon. So onwards. Since the command was to slaves to be subject to their masters, it's easy for us to look at it and decide it's not useful for us or it doesn't apply. But the commands given here apply not only to slaves, but to all those who are under authority. So whether children, employees, or students, we all owe authority and respect to somebody in a position of authority. And so all of this is just as binding on us as it was for the slaves of Peter's day. And we'll see that more as we continue. The actual command here is for slaves to be subject to your masters with all respect. So just like the command for us to submit to legitimate authority back in verse 13, this command is in the middle voice. Now, the middle voice is used for reflexive ideas. The idea here is that you cause yourself to submit. You submit yourself 
to authority. Notice here that Peter doesn't command the masters to make their slaves submit. He speaks to the slave and orders them to submit themselves. They must choose to willingly submit to the commands of the one in authority over them. Peter, the Lord is the one true authority who has put every other authority in place. And as such, the slave is to submit himself to the master and to respect him. And the reason for submission here is not because the master is worthy of it, but because God has called the slave to submit. We respect earthly rulers, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. And this is especially important for us to grasp as we move along in verse 18. Because if a slave has a good master, of course he should obey him, right? If we have good employers, we should respect them. But how many people in our culture would tell you to respect even harsh or incompetent bosses? My guess is few, if any. But Peter commands slaves to obey their masters whether they are good and gentle or unjust. Other options for the word unjust are cruel, harsh, unreasonable, and even crooked. So the word for unjust is not just incompetence and cruelty, but also moral failure. And yet, Peter commands slaves to be subject to both good and unjust masters. And there's only one exception to this command to submission. We are not to obey and do any sort of evil. If respecting and honoring our bosses means disobeying Scripture, we must obey God rather than men and accept whatever consequences may arise for our disobedience. But so long as we are not doing evil by submitting and respecting to those in authority, we are to willingly obey. Even if we disagree with them or their action, we must obey. That's the command. And then we have to disobey man in order to obey God when they sin. But even in that moment, we have to do so respectfully. And that brings up a question for us. If we have to disobey man in order to obey God, what will the consequences be? What if we follow God with our whole hearts, seek only that which is good, but we are punished for it by evil men? We live in a fallen and a sinful world. And as much as I would like to say that suffering doesn't happen, it happens every day. We follow the word and our consciences, and yet we are often punished by the world for it. So that leads to more question. Is God incapable of protecting us? Or maybe we messed up and he's punishing us. Well, that's not what Peter says. In verse 19, he says that it is a gracious thing to suffer for doing what is right. The Greek word that the ESV translates as gracious is charis. It's the normal word for grace. So how odd does that sound? It is a grace to endure suffering unjustly. What do you mean, Peter? How could it be a good thing to suffer? Well, Peter's answer in the text is that it all depends on the reason for your suffering. And ultimately, there are only two ways to endure suffering under authority. First, there is suffering that comes as a consequence of sin and disobedience. For the slave in the ancient world, it could be, excuse me, for the slave in the ancient world, disobedience and disrespect were commonly punished through beatings. It was a physical type of punishment. For the employee today, it can be equated to being sent home without pay, to having your pay docked, or for being fired. For a child disobeying their parents, it can be losing toys, losing privileges, or being sent to time out. Regardless, the reason for all of these punishments is disrespect and disobedience. 
In other words, if you talk back, disrespect, and disobey the authority, then you deserve to be punished. And in our anti-authoritarian culture, we always like to blame the boss or the one with power. That wicked manager fired my friend. Yeah, well, your friend showed up late to work for a month straight and then didn't show up for three days. That person disrespected the boss and deserved to be fired. The slave that willingly refuses to listen to the master deserves punishment. The citizen that refuses to obey traffic laws or to pay taxes deserves to be punished under the law. All of these examples have one thing in common. The suffering that the offender has to undergo was earned. Now, whether the severity of the punishment fits the crime, that's another conversation. But if you do evil, then you deserve the punishment you get. You don't gain anything by being punished because of your own sin or stupidity. That's why Peter asks, what credit is it? What can you gain by suffering that you deserve? The answer is nothing. But there is a way to suffer that will be to your credit. So second, there is suffering that comes from doing good. If instead of disobeying and disrespecting authority, you obey and respect authority, then you deserve no punishment. But the problem comes when the will of God and the will of our bosses does not line up. When they disagree, then we have to obey God rather than men. And more often than not, we must disobey men to obey God and evil men then punish us for it. In these situations, we have done nothing, nothing worthy of punishment, but we receive it anyway. You respectfully stood your ground and remained honest with the customer. You affirmed the Bible over an evil in society. You refused to alter the numbers that your boss told you to in a report. Anytime you do what is right and are belittled, demoted, or fired, you are being punished unjustly. You did not deserve what you received. You did what was right, and yet you paid a price for it. Well, Peter says that when you endure suffering for doing good, this is a gracious thing. In God's eyes, there is no credit for suffering for sin, but it is a gracious thing to suffer unjustly for doing good. And there's an inclusio in, the, in this verse. Look in verse 19 and then in verse 20. This is a gracious thing in verse 19. And then in verse 20, this is a gracious thing. So twice over at the start and end of this section in the text, Peter says it is a gracious thing to suffer for doing good. Now, I don't know about you all, but suffering doesn't sound good to me. How is it a grace to suffer for doing right? When I do everything right and yet I get punished anyway, I tend to be pretty discouraged. Shouldn't we be rewarded for doing right? And here we have to remember the reason we are to obey and respect our earthly bosses and masters. We are never told to obey them because of their qualities or how worthy they are personally. We are only ever commanded to obey and submit to earthly authorities because the true authority has put them there. It is according to God's providence that we grew up with the parents that we had. He planned who we would work for. For the slaves of Peter's day, he ordained whom each one would serve. We do not work for men, but for God. That's why Paul could write in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your, your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So notice that just as we are really serving God, not man, so God gives the true reward, not man. 
Evil bosses and masters may repay us evil for good, but God will reward us richly for good. It may not always be in this life, but as we obey him and submit to even harsh earthly rulers, we are laying up treasure for ourselves in glory. That's why Peter can say it is a grace to suffer unjustly for the truth. Any who suffer for the Lord's sake will be rewarded richly in the end. Therefore, we have to be ready to both submit to earthly rulers and to suffer for doing good. Anyone can submit to a brilliant, kind, wholly respectable boss. But only those who are walking with the Spirit can respect and submit to those who are totally unworthy otherwise. So in that way, we not only serve the Lord and lay up treasures for ourselves in glory, but we become gospel witnesses in our behavior. If Christ is truly our Lord, then we must submit every aspect of our lives to him. So whether it's your career or a slave service in ancient Rome, the call is really the same. This is a gracious thing. And there's one more reason that is a gracious thing to suffer unjustly. Peter says that you have been called to this suffering. I'm sure you got really excited at that, right? You said, yes, we get to suffer. But we're not to look for ways to suffer. We're nowhere told to seek out persecution or to bring it upon ourselves. But because we are in this world and not of it, the world is going to persecute us because of the truth. They hate us, and so we will suffer injustice in this world for standing on what is true. So when suffering inevitably comes, it should be a comfort to know that all of this has been ordained by God. It is no accident. It is not outside of God's control. He tells us it will happen, how to stand firm, and that we will be rewarded for doing so. That's why the Apostle James can tell us to consider it all joy when we face suffering. But before we move to the second point, Peter gives us the reason that we are called to suffer unjustly. He says that you've been called to suffer unjustly because Christ also suffered for you. Your suffering for good is not unique. Quite the opposite is true. We are called to suffer for doing good because our Lord suffered unjustly first. We are not greater than our Lord, and so we are to follow and to imitate him in everything we do. And since we are united to him as his church, the world will treat us the same way that it treated Jesus. Therefore, our job is not to rebel or to overthrow the culture or even to introduce wide-ranging employment reform legislation. Our job is to follow after Christ's example. Peter says that Jesus is our example. The ESV then says that we are to follow in his steps. The Greek is literally in his footprints. Where he has walked, so we must go. And that leads us into the second point. Because Christ suffered, you must follow his footprints. And this is looking verses 22 through 25. So while we are talking about a very different subject, Peter gives us tremendous encouragement. It's a scary thing to risk persecution. The prospect of losing a job for your faith is a very real possibility. Being mocked, being ostracized for your faith is not theoretical, it's real. There are real and painful consequences for following God in an evil world. And yet with all the risks and all the unjust suffering we may undergo, we are not alone in that suffering. There's absolutely nowhere God can call us to suffer that Christ has not already been. 
We are told to follow in the footprints of Jesus. We do not have to be trailblazers exploring new forms of suffering for good. In every trial we undergo, Jesus has already been there. Otherwise, you couldn't follow in his footprints. He had to go there first or there wouldn't be a footprint at all. He's our model for how to suffer for doing good. And that's what Peter turns to next in this passage. Christ is your great example. Verse 22 tells us that Jesus committed no sin. There's not one single law of God or legitimate command of men that Jesus broke. Now, Peter walked with Jesus for over three years. Peter was even in the smaller inner circle of the apostles. He was the spokesperson of the apostles and likely the most prominent out of them all. So if anyone could tell you whether or not Jesus ever sinned, Peter is a pretty good person to be able to tell you. But he doesn't tell you he sinned, did he? He said he committed no sin. Jesus never sinned against his parents, his siblings, the governing authorities, or the Lord. Out of all of God's law, he never broke so much as one command. If anyone deserved to be well-treated with all respect and honor, it was our Lord Jesus. And yet he was persecuted, falsely accused, and put to death. The only sinless one suffered greater persecution than any believer ever has. Well, Peter then quotes from Isaiah 53, 9, to tell us that no deceit was found in his mouth. So not only did Jesus not do anything that was sinful, he never said anything evil either. Everything he ever said was good and right. There was nothing in his words that deserved any punishment, and yet he was wrongly abused. In word and in deed, he was truly the spotless lamb. So when we are wrongly accused of something, what do we normally do? We want to defend ourselves. Our self-righteous zeal kicks in and it leads us into defense of our innocence. We don't deserve this. It's even worse when people shame and mock us. What is our tendency in those situations? It's to turn around and return the favor. We counterattack to show why it is wrongful to accuse us of these things. We want justice, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But we normally want it for our own sake and our own glory. But how differently Christ responded when he suffered. Peter says that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Surely the perfect God-man had every right to repay the evil of his persecutors with judgment. He could have defended his case and punished his enemies right then and there. And yet he did not condescend to their level. Jesus did not meet them in their evil. In fact, Jesus made no reply to his tormentors at all. Jesus made an appeal to one and to one only. He spoke to his father and he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Our Lord knew he was innocent and that he was undeserving of this treatment he received. But he also knew that there was purpose in his suffering. He knew that it was part of what his father had ordained. And furthermore, this sovereign and all-knowing God knew the sins of every man present. Those who crucified God or crucified Christ would all be pacified in the end. Either they would one day be crushed and pay the penalty for the torture they committed, or as they repented, Jesus' blood would cover their sins. The Lord knows and sees all, meaning no sin against his anointed one or his children will ever be forgotten or excused. So in addition to trusting the Father through the suffering, Jesus had purpose in his suffering. 
In verse 24, Peter tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. The perfect Son of God took our sin upon himself and went to the cross for you. He raised them upon himself so that he might carry them away. The word for tree is the same word used in Deuteronomy 21:22, where anyone hanged on a tree is under God's curse and judgment. To be hung on a tree is to be rejected by God. And this is crucial for you to understand about your salvation. Jesus took your sin and he lifted it onto himself. Then with that sin attached to him, he became accursed on the cross. Your sin was put to death right then at the cross. It was paid for in full and it was removed from you forever. Look at the result of the removal of your sin in verse 24. Peter says that the purpose of the sinless one taking your sin and putting it to death at the cross is so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Our sin was put to death at the cross and we were raised in newness of life because Christ suffered unjustly at the hands of cruel men. His suffering and death were the effectual cause of your redemption. So if there's any doubt about the benefits you receive from his death, Peter assures us that his death has brought us new life. He quotes from Isaiah 53, 5, and he says, By his wounds you have been healed. The unjust treatment of Christ is the means by which your healing took place. The healing here refers to your forgiveness and your spiritual renewal. Your very salvation is founded upon Christ who suffered unjustly at the hands of wicked men. This is one of the clearest passages in Scripture of what theologians refer to as the substitutionary atonement. Christ, as the substitute, took on himself all of your sin and its penalty. He then went to the cross and put that sin to death by paying the penalty himself. But Jesus didn't just suffer so that we might die to sin, but that we also might live to righteousness. His perfection, sinlessness, and righteousness were then placed on you. So not only has your debt been paid by Christ, but he has made you holy and righteous before God. In the Lord's eyes, you are perfectly righteous and holy because you belong to Christ. And this grand plan of salvation has been God's plan from the beginning of time. Throughout redemptive history, God has been gathering together all of his wandering sheep and bringing them back into the fold. He has worked a grand plan of redemption in order to connect us to his son, the overseer of your souls. That's why I read from Ezekiel 34 for our scripture reading. I wanted you to see that even back then when Israel's leaders were failing to lead justly, God had a plan through it. Even then, the true shepherd was waiting to come to the earth in order to redeem and to gather his lost sheep. His suffering was unjust, cruel, and perpetrated by wicked men. But it was all according to God's eternal purpose. And it was God's eternal purpose so that he could claim you as his own. So how does our suffering connect to Christ's suffering? How is it that we walk in his footprints as we suffer? As we've already talked about, we must suffer for doing good. Suffering for doing wrong or being lazy, that doesn't count. That just means we are being rebellious. We are to suffer unjustly for doing good. That is the first way in which we must 
follow in Jesus' footprints. The second way is modeled after his effectual suffering. Now, we cannot pay for other sins. We are not perfect. We are not fully God and fully human. Only Jesus is the God-man. Our suffering cannot redeem others. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a God-given purpose in every bit of our suffering. There are several ways in which God uses our unjust suffering for his glory. So first, while only Jesus' blood can save, ours can be a gospel witness. Jesus' suffering brought you salvation. Your suffering can point others to salvation. God can use our unjust suffering to bring others to repentance and to faith. If you've ever read through Fox's Book of Martyrs, then you will know that this how this can happen. As we suffer unjustly, God can speak to the hearts of those who witness the injustice, even those committing the injustice. He can awaken them to their sin and their need of forgiveness and even provide the opportunity for you to share the gospel. Second, God can use our suffering as a judgment against the persecutor. Much like preaching the gospel, our witness is a double-edged sword. Through both, God is either working to redeem or condemn all who hear his word and witness our suffering. Those who have heard the gospel preached and seen it lived out through our behavior and good deeds will have no excuse on the last day. Remember that Peter wants us to be evangelists. All of the commands to be subject from chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 4, verse 11 are for the purpose of making us gospel witnesses in the world. What an amazing thought that God can even use unjust suffering to evangelize the world. And yet, given that Jesus' unjust suffering brought about our redemption, should we be surprised by that? Well, third, God can use unjust suffering in your life for your sanctification and faith. As you learn to imitate Christ and entrust yourself to his care through every trial, God is growing you. Even in the most painful and unjust trials, God is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory in walking with him. As Romans 8:28 tells us, all things work together for the good of those who love God. Not just some things. It isn't just certain types of suffering. God works all things for your good, even when you can't understand it. And in these ways and many more, the Lord uses our suffering to grow his church, to mature us, and to display his overpowering glory. Now, I didn't title this sermon, Graceful Suffering, in the bulletin to describe how you handle suffering. I use that title to describe God's grace in your suffering. It has a purpose in it for your good. Believers, you will be persecuted at some point for doing what is right. And in those times, you must entrust yourself to the Lord. Lean on him for the strength you need and watch for the Lord to work through even unjust suffering. And count it all joy, not because suffering is fun, far from it, but because you are connected to Christ and he suffered unjustly for you. Whenever God sees fit to lead you into suffering of any kind, Jesus invites you to walk in his footprints. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a difficult text for many reasons. The most difficult of which is that you have called us to suffer. Suffering is not something we seek out or want to seek out, and it's not something you've even told us to seek out. But it is something that you bring to us in our lives. 
So, Lord, even as we struggle with that reality, help us to rest in your promises, to entrust ourselves to you, because you have a purpose in every bit of it. There's no accidental suffering. There's no accidental unjust suffering. Everything is from your hand for our good and for your church and for your glory. Lord, help us to rest in that and to rest in Christ as our example. We ask all this in his name. Amen.